Welcome to Your Brain On by Salience Learning. I'm Karen Foster. And I'm Krista Gerhard. This is part one of our three-part series with Dr. Barbara Oakley. Enjoy. Dr. Barbara Oakley, we are so excited to have you today. Welcome to the Salience Learning Your Brain On podcast. We feel very privileged to have you as as a guest. You have such a rich and credentialed background. I mean, the, the number of degrees, the number of experiences that you have brought to the table and which I'm sure informs much of your work and your thinking is, is quite impressive. And we're so excited to introduce you to our audience and to really have a discussion to pick your brain and learn more about who you are and how you can help our, our clients who are listening to the podcast within the life science industry. So welcome. I'm so excited to be here, and it's going to be great to share because there's so much emerging from neuroscience, and a lot of it people don't know, even though it's simple and very practically useful. Absolutely. So can you help us understand what led you to this passion for the science of learning with such a diverse and rich background from living in Antarctica to being you know, on a Russian trawler to having all these experiences in the military and beyond? What led you to the science of learning? Well, you know, it's a complicated answer to that question, but to try to simplify, I was basically terrible at math and science growing up. Um, and I, I just blew it off, didn't like it, didn't want to do it, thought I didn't have a, you know, the math gene or whatever. So I, when I graduated from high school, I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, maybe I can learn a language. I seem to be more verbally oriented. And so I enlisted in the Army and uh, went and spent about a year and a half at the Defense Language Institute learning Russian. And I learned it really well. I learned it a lot better when I went out and worked on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea. And I have such good drinking stories. <laughs> it would be a whole nother podcast. But, but anyway, um, I found that when I was age 26 and I was going to get out of the Army that, you know, for some weird reason, nobody wanted to hire me. I mean, they just weren't interested in my Slavic languages and literature degree. And yet all the people I was working with, these West Point engineers, were getting these great job offers. And I thought, well, you know, I know I hate math and science, but I'm also supposed to be open to new perspectives and, and adventures. And why don't I see if I could do this sort of new adventure of the mind? I went back to the university at age 26 and started at remedial high school algebra and began to work towards an engineering degree. And it wasn't easy because I would I would do like six months of engineering study and it's like, I just can't take it anymore. And then I'd go out and do six months on the trawlers and it's like a bunch of drinking and seasickness and all this kind of stuff. And after six months, it's like, I just can't take it anymore. And I it would go back and forth. Um, but eventually, um, oh, and in there, I, I ended up going to the South Pole Station. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you got this opportunity. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go off there. And uh, I was a radio operator, and I, I uh, met this wonderful man. And so three weeks after we 
met, uh, we became engaged, and three weeks after that, we were married. So I always say I had to the end of the earth to meet that man. Oh, awesome. I, I love I, it. I was very lucky. But I, so then I went through, got my degree, um, you know, with much, it was very difficult, uh, but I, I did well. I kept doing better and better um, as I went on because um, part of it was I just, I didn't realize it at the time, but if you develop a preliminary neural architecture for whatever the subject you're learning, it makes it easier to begin adding things to that architecture. So the more you learn, the easier it is to learn in that subject. This is why people are like, oh, I got to my, you know, I got my bachelor's degree. Oh, I'm not going to go for a master's because that's going to be even tougher. And it's like, well, actually, it's kind of easier. Um, and many people find this to be the case. But um so, but I always kept wondering, you know, why was I able to be successful as an adult when I was not able to be su uh, successful as a child in learning in math and science, which is like frequently it's reversed. And I, I, I wondered about that for years and, and kind of along the way, when I get interested in the topic, I, I like to write a book about it. So I wrote a book about you know, why do nasty people do the kind of things they do? Not psychopaths necessarily, but just sort of like a, a boss who runs off and takes credit for all your work while he disses you or, or you know, a friend who kind of does something mean. Um, why do people do that? So I, I looked up the neuroscience, the cognitive psychology, uh, you know, uh, about all of that. And that led me to why are people sometimes following bad leaders, you know, and it's not because they themselves are bad, but because they're kind of, they're really good people and they're trying to do good things and they believe in the goodness of people. And, uh, and so that led to an edited book for Oxford University Press called Pathological Altruism. And I was invited to speak for the National Academy of Sciences about it, wrote a paper for them. Um, so I, I got this great background over about 10 years of sort of feral studying of cognitive psychology and neuroscience. You know, from a high level perspective, you know, I'm an engineering professor, I can understand the literature, you know, more or less, at least the key points. And so um, I got sick of writing about people who were malevolent or misguided. Uh, and so one day, one of my students asked me, how'd you change your brain? He, he had had brain injury in the military, uh, you know, from um, concussions uh, in the vehicles he was riding. And he said, well, it, it, he had started learning engineering as a way to heal his brain and it kind of worked but he asked me how'd you change your brain and i wrote him a little email and then i thought you know this is actually worth a book and so i wrote a book about it and I i'm still boggled i mean penguin random house picked it up and you know it's like uh you know we'll hold our nose and we'll pick this book, you know, a mind for numbers. Who's ever going to read a book like this? You know, maybe a few 
academics or something like that about how to learn in math and science. And it sold over a million copies around the world. And it really showed me that there's a tremendous interest in, you know, in learning and, and from a neuroscientific perspective, from a solid grounding in what's going on in the brain, which is really not what has happened in education in the past. And in fact, I think one of the, the biggest challenges I have to overcome is like when they when people might hear I'm going to give a talk about learning how to learn is like, you know, some other, you know, and bless their hearts. Um, cognitive psychologists, you know, part of my work rests on the tremendous work that they've done. But if you are a, you know, you're a coder and you're working at a deep level you, and you hear some cognitive psychologist saying something like, well, you don't need to memorize anything. You can always look it up. That is actually diametrically opposed to how you learn well. You need to have those neural structures in your brain about important concepts. And to hear things like that, when you're hearing that, it's actually misguiding you. It's taking you down a dark path that actually cripples your learning. And I think people intuitively sense that. And that is why sometimes they, they tend to avoid, you know, something coming from psychology, for example, by a person who's not been there and done that in a, a highly technical um, you know, deeply mathematical discipline. So, um, you know, so I, I tend to come at things from a very, very different perspective. And, you know, plus I just, from all my adventures and so forth, I love metaphors and I love telling, giving examples that are also translated into things that are simple, easy to understand, and that are so sticky mentally that they, they help you grasp difficult seemingly difficult concepts uh, so so anyway i started just by answering that student's question i i kind of got launched into the world of learning and i just learned that there's so it's such a compelling need i mean when we launched our massive open online course um it like before it even launched, it had well over 100,000 people signed up for it. And now we're well over 3 million people. So, it, I mean, and it, I mean, 1,000 people sign up every day, at least, you know, uh, day in, day out. And so um, there's a tremendous need for the kind of work that you all are doing. You know, people, this is wonderful information and it's very, very insightful. And so I applaud you for working in this this area. Well, I mean, so many things that you, you mentioned there are just, you know, ringing so true in, in my experience and what we've seen in our learners. And, you know, you mentioned the, the, the Massively Open Online course, which is one of the most popular massively open online courses ever. And you touched a bit about some of the dynamics of why there is this passion for learning how to learn. I guess I'd love first for you to anchor our listeners in, in what does it really mean when you say learning how to learn? Like talk about that from a meta level, right? To, to maybe someone who's never heard that concept. 
what does that mean first? And then we'd love to know why you think it is so such a hot topic. Well, I think it's best to explain what I mean by giving a couple of examples. And the first example I would give is, so as a child, I moved from Texas to Massachusetts. They were suddenly way far ahead of me in the multiplication tables. I tried to study it, but it didn't come quickly. So I just gave up saying, you know, I am obviously not as quick as the other learners in the classroom. Here's what I didn't know. There's two fundamental modes that the brain operates in. You know, one is basically, you can think of it in terms of exercise. One is when you're actively exercising and the other is when you're resting. It's analogous, analogous to that in, you know, uh, well, we might call it the meathead theory of, uh, of learning. And you know, both muscular tissue and neural tissue are excitable tissue, so it's it's actually reasonable to have this analogy. But in the in the brain, you can be focusing, which is like the active exercising part of your brain is working hard to focus on something, or you can be relaxed. And I call that the diffuse mode network. Um, Psychologists call it the task negative network, whereas neuroscientists call it the default mode network. So um, these, you know, this focus mode and diffuse mode, our brain alternates between that while we're learning. Of course, there's other things going on, um, you know, like the hippocampus needs a rest and so forth uh, in order to communicate to the neocortex. But anyway, so you go back and forth when you're learning. And when you're focusing, it's very common when you're first beginning to learn something for you to just feel like, I'm stuck. I'm so frustrated. I can't understand this. I must be so stupid. And, um, and then, but if you take a, a break, either by looking at something else or going out for a walk, that's even better, or you're doing something that allows your attentional mechanisms to disengage from what you've been working on and and kind of go into this default mode network. Then you return. What that does is it gives you a whole new perspective. And often your brain has been working in the background to kind of consolidate and make new connections so that when you do return, it's, it's, it's like, oh, it's so easy now. You know, how could I have ever uh, not understood that? See, nobody ever told me that as a child. So I just thought I'm stupid instead of oh, all I need to do is when I get frustrated, go take a little break and then come back. And then, you know, I, I would do stupid things during my studies. So I'm studying engineering. And so I'm, I'm looking at a page of physics and I remember going, I am not going to turn this page until I understand it. So I was just stared at that page, you know, for about three hours. I mean, I was really focused on it. And then I happened to accidentally kind of turn the page kind of, and my eyes just sort of, and, I, and then I looked and it was like the total answer to what I hadn't understood. I just wasted three hours. I mean, you know, is there a little bit of benefit to really call me? Probably, but not nearly as much as if I had simply grasped the key idea right off the bat. 
I didn't have a clue about proper learning methods. And I remember even at the time, you know, why doesn't anybody ever talk about what what your brain needs to do to really learn well? And little did I know that I would end up working in that area. But students do, you know, things that are less effective and less efficient all the time. They will reread things, um, which all that does is your eyes go over the over the page and it feels like you're doing something. I mean, you can actually see the concepts, but you're not building neural structure. And, and we, you know, we'll, we'll do things like um, underline and so forth. We think it's going on into our brain when we underline, but we're not. The key is, uh, you know, as many great researchers, Jeff Karpicki, uh, you know, so many others uh, have, an, uh, I particularly love the book, um, Powerful Teaching by um, uh, Pooja Agarwal and Patrice Bain. And it just talks about the importance of retrieval practice. That's the key. So if I had, and part of the reason I was successful when I started studying in math and sciences is that I made myself use some of those same retrieval practices that I had used when learning language. And here's the shocker is modern reform mathematics says, no, that's bad. So it was a, a luck, good luck for me to have gone off on the side, learned a valuable teaching method that we now know from neuroscience is really good, and then just come back and, you know, applied it at a college level. Um, it, it's, you know, it really helped amazingly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Brain On. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Krista Gerhard. And I'm Karen Foster. And we'll see you next time.